Well, we're getting close to the end of our series here on Daniel. And uh, just to catch you guys up to remember, Daniel was a, a high-ranking official. He was a Jew who was uh, in exile from Judah, and he was a high-ranking official in uh, the, the Babylonian Empire and then in the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, he was a, a gifted interpreter of dreams, we've seen. He got a chance to interpret some very key dreams. And uh, he was a great seer of visions. And this second half of Daniel is sort of like right in the middle of some of these great visions that he saw. Uh, but I think, and one thing I'm excited about this chapter for is I think it, for all of his, uh, him being a high-ranking official, him being an interpreter of dreams and a great seer of visions, uh, perhaps above all, Daniel was a great prayer. Daniel was a great prayer. And that's usually the case with someone who God uses to do great things for him in some area. It's usually the case that if someone is extremely fruitful in a particular area, if they're a great preacher or if they're a person who is a great evangelist or somebody who goes on, who is a missionary and goes to another country in a hard place and they see success, it's usually the fact they're not so much a great preacher or a great missionary or a great whatever, it is that they are usually a great prayer. There's stories of Charles Spurgeon, who might have been the greatest English-speaking preacher of all time, that as great as a preacher as he was, they called him the prince of preachers, that as great a preacher as he was, that there were times that the, his deacons at his church had to carry him out of the prayer room beside the sanctuary in order for him to actually preach. Above being a great preacher, they say he was a great prayer. And that, that's, that's why this chapter may be to me the, the highlight of the book of Daniel. Uh, especially for us as a church, as, as we have been saying for, for months now that we want to become a church of prayer. We acknowledged some months back that we were not a church of prayer. We have not been a church of prayer. And I say that to our shame. It's not something that you throw out there lightly. And we said that we are not a church of prayer that we desire to be. And we've seen some movement in this direction. We've seen in the past few months some, some real answers to prayer. We took the 40 days before Easter and we prayed for the Del Webb community out here. And we've never had anybody visit from the Del Webb community. We've sent flyers. Uh, we've sent, uh, we put up signs that in times past, uh, Easter and Christmas, and never seen anybody from there come. We said, all right, well, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to send out any flyers. We're just going to pray for these 40 days. We asked community groups, pray for these particular streets. And they did. And to, by God's grace, we saw, I think, three or four families come in from that neighborhood. I want to continue to pray for the Del Webb community. We have a young woman in our, in our church. She's been having, struggling with headaches, and she was praying, her community group was praying, and she's been healed from those headaches. Dell Miller has been, I didn't okay this with him, but Dell Miller has been struggling for, for a long time about this sense of call to ministry. He's been part-time with us now for over a year, but he's been feeling this call to, to leave behind uh, his, his service in the, the health services field and to answer God's call to full-time ministry. And he, he and his wife have been struggling with that for, for months and for years, actually. And recently they said, all right, we're going to do this. You know what happened? The next day, I've been praying that the next day, teacher's work said, hey, we're going to give you more hours. And he's going to obey the Lord this fall, and he's going to go into full-time ministry, and he's going to join a seminary and get trained. 
Uh, we, we've been praying for uh, Victor and his family in, in, uh, the, in Southeast Asia in a very difficult place. We prayed for him on a Wednesday night, and then he told me the next morning he'd been struggling with a sickness, and he was healed that night after we prayed. We've seen some God move and answer prayer more than we have in a long time, honestly, but we have a long way to go before we can actually say that we are a church of prayer. We're a church that prays, but we want to be a church of prayer. So it's a great gift to be able to read this prayer, one of the longest prayers in the Bible that's recorded, to be able to read this prayer and to learn what it means to be a great prayer. Because it's, it's, only, it's not only great because we get to see uh, Daniel pray and how we pray, but we get to see the answer come here. And what we see is that as soon as Daniel began to utter this prayer, this particular prayer, this, this heart that he had as he entered this prayer, we see that as soon as he began to, in, to pray this prayer, that God sent an angel speedily with an answer. You know what this means? That means this is the kind of prayer that God speeds to answer. This doesn't mean that, he will, that we will see the answer that, this fast and every time that we pray, but we, what we see is that this is the kind of prayer that moves the heart of God so that he sets things in motion to answer the prayer. So you look at me in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made a king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, what we see here is Daniel isn't just this morning as he's reading the word, he isn't just reading God's word in order to have a better day. We've had those conversations, right? Man, I just have a better day when I start off in the Word of God. Like, like that's the point of us reading God's Word and spending time in prayer so I could have a smooth day, so like I could have no stoplights between my house and work, or my kids won't argue with each other, or that I wouldn't get in trouble, or that I would, I would I, the point that so many of us, when we spend time in devotion, we spend time in prayer and in the Word, if we spend time in prayer and the Word, usually the purpose is like, I have a better day whenever I get in the Word. But Daniel would see here, he wasn't in the Word this morning or this day in order just to see how can I have a better day. He was seeking God for an answer. He was in the Word seeking God for an answer. As he looked around, as he saw the state of the Jewish people around him, as he looked around and, and heard reports of the desolation of Jerusalem, as he was in a foreign land, and the people of, Jew, of the, the Jews, God's people, were in captivity away from God's promised land. Daniel looked around and he saw that things aren't right, and he went to the Word of God for answers. You know what that means? That means that Daniel wasn't apathetic and lethargic. Daniel wasn't satisfied. But see, Daniel could have been. Daniel, at this point, has been in service in, uh, in this empire, in service to this empire, somewhere around six decades. Daniel was an old man as he prays this prayer. Daniel was a high-ranking official. He was one of the top-ranking officials in the whole entire empire, the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. When Daniel said things, things happened. People listened. Daniel lived a very comfortable life. He was powerful. He lived in comfort. He was surrounded by beauty and luxury. Babylon was considered one of the wonders of the world. It was called the Garden City. 
It was amazingly beautiful. Daniel could have sat back and said, I'm an old man. I've had my day. I've run my course. Hey, remember, I was the one who was thrown into the den of the lions. I have a great story to tell. I've run my race. I've done my thing. But Daniel here, six decades in, a powerful man, an old man, a man surrounded by comfort, a man surrounded by beauty, a man who, whenever he speaks, things happen. He sits down to the word. He says, God, There is something wrong with your people. There's something wrong with your church, if you will. I look around and I see things aren't right. This is not the way things should be. And this is what he read in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. Jeremiah was prophesying about how the, the nation of Israel and Judah would fall and would go into captivity and be taken up into a foreign land. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, by the way, this is happening because the Jews have been disobeying and following after other idols and turning their back on the one and only true God for year after year after year after year. And God had said back when Moses, when he made the promise with them to enter in the promised land, he said, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as long as you follow me, it will go well with you. I will put you in this land flowing with milk and honey and it will go well with you. You will be the victor and you will never be defeated. You will be the lender and never be the borrower. It will go well with you, but if you do not, if you turn away from me, your one true husband, if you, my wife, if you turn away from me and play the whore and run with other false gods, then what will happen is the curse will come upon you, and you'll be conquered and you'll be scattered. But, this is the promise that he made here with with Moses and even in Jeremiah, but after those 70 years are, are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste, and I will bring you home, is what he's saying. I'll bring you home. Daniel sees in God's word that this is what God said. God said, the 70 years will pass and then I will bring you home. And Daniel starts to add things up and he says, the 70 years are past. God, you said 70 years you would return us back to your land. 70 years you said you would restore the fortunes of Judah. 70 years you said. You said you will rebuild it. 70 years, and this time has passed, and Daniel comes to God based upon God's word, and the first thing he does, we see, is he prays God's word. He doesn't pray his own simple desires or his fleeting, hey, God, this is what I think you should do. He sees God said, this is what I will do, and so therefore, Daniel has boldness to go to God and to say, God, you said this would happen, now would you cause it to happen? Daniel understood that the Lord is a God who speaks and who acts and who intervenes in the lives of men. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is a God who intervenes into the lives and affairs of men and that he comes in and intervenes and acts and changes things? Daniel knew that God was a God who was in a covenant relationship with his people. He made these promises to Moses. He said this through Jeremiah. And so therefore, he had a boldness to go to God and say, God, do this. And it's God's word that lies behind humble yet bold prayers that don't give up. You know what Daniel was praying? 
It's a lot like a lot of the songs that you read. He was saying, how long, O Lord? Psalm 85, one through eight, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. The, the psalmist is remembering when God brought the people of Israel through the wilderness, out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? There's some of you that should be stirring your soul right now when I read that line. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. What is your prayer that rises from your personal time in the Scripture? What is the prayer that stirs in, in your soul whenever you spend time in the Word? Do you go to the Word saying, God, I see things are not right around me. Things are not right in my family. Things are not right in my neighborhood. God, I've been living in this neighborhood for years, and my neighbors don't know you. I don't even know if they know I'm a Christian or know what that really means. God, look at our church. Look at the American church. Look at our church here. Look at the American church. God, would you revive us again, O oh Lord? Things are not as they should be. And you said we would be your people and you would be our God and you would put your spirit within us. You said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us and we would be your witnesses. You said that we would go into all the world and make disciples. And yet here in our neighborhood, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, God, would you come and revive? How long, O oh Lord? What's your prayer when you gather for worship on Sunday with, or when you gather with your community group? Is it, Lord, I pray this would help me? If you even pray at all, or is it just like you're checking a box off? But if you even pray a prayer before you come on your way or as you walk in or as you're sitting before it starts or as the music begins, what's your prayer? God, I pray this would help me. That's what most of us pray. And that's why when most of us leave a church service, we judge whether the service helped me or didn't help me or whether I think it helped me or didn't help me. Why did he go so long? Why did he talk so loud? I didn't understand. Why did they sing that song again? It was cold, it was hot, the chair was uncomfortable. Is it, Lord, may this help me? Or is it, Lord, show me my sin? God, show me my lethargy. Lord, convict us, change us as a church. Make us look like the church the New Testament describes. Pour your spirit out upon us today, Lord. Pierce and search our hearts. Give us true and powerful faith to love others and to do exploits for your name. Cause us, Lord, cause us to actually look like Jesus. Not to say the right things or to belong to the right party, but God, cause us, cause us to look like Jesus. Do you pray for God to give you his eyes so he can give you his burden, which is the second thing we see with Daniel. He prayed God's word, but the second thing is that we say that we see that Daniel prays a prayer that shares God's burden. Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord God. 
seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Do you hear that? I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him, seeking him. I didn't throw up a prayer. I didn't say something. I didn't throw something out by rote. He says, I sought him. I sought him. Not an answer, not a better day. I sought him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandment and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the land, all the people of the land. Daniel saw what should be happening in God's word. He looked around, he saw what's actually going on around him, but we're still in captivity. Though we have been sent to captivity, our hearts are still hard. We're still far from you. We have not sought you. And Daniel decided, I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do it. I'm not going to wait for my church to catch on or the community to catch on. I'm not going to wait for a podcast to come out about sackcloth and ashes. I'm going myself. I am going to come in. He had a burden because he understood the magnitude of the problem. He began through God's word to see the world the way God saw it. He began to see his situation as God saw it. He began to see his, God's people and the, as God saw it. He saw Jerusalem in desolation, the capital city of the promised lands, the great city, the, the crown jewel of the promised land in desolation. God had promised This land, he had promised Jerusalem. He had delivered them from Egypt and from the wilderness. And the promised land was the great sign that they were God's favored people. But not only did he see that destroyed, he saw the temple, the place for God's presence, what truly set God's people apart from any other nation on earth. It wasn't because Jerusalem was a better city than any other place or the land was a better land than any other place. It was because in the temple, God's presence dwelt among his people. That's what set God's people apart. And the temple was destroyed. A picture of God's presence departed from his people and his people therefore displaced and scattered across the empire and across the world. He saw the desolation of Jerusalem, the, the destroyed temple, and above all what stirred his soul is that God's glory was not being shown through God's people to the world. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God, these are your people. We didn't choose you. You chose us. And yes, we have we have gone away from you. We have sought other gods. We've sought any other God, any other rule than your righteous rule. But God, you said that you would return us. You know, I'm crying out that you would do. Daniel had a burden. And that's what most great prayers 
and most great prayers have. Great prayers and great prayers. That's very close. People who pray and the prayers they pray is what they have in common is having a great burden. Nehemiah, when he heard about Jerusalem, he couldn't eat or sleep. He fasted and he prayed. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He spent nights in prayer. Paul said he was in agony like childbirth so that for the churches that he led to look like Jesus and stay faithful to him. The question is, do, do we have a burden? Do you have a burden? I mean, a true burden, not like something like it hits you whenever you think about it, then you move on, but a true burden. Do you have a burden that goes beyond yourself and the four walls of your home? Do you have a burden for God's church and God's people? Do you look out over this land and say, God, this is not the way your church is supposed to look. This is not the way Christians are supposed to look. Do you have a burden for the church? Do you have a burden for the people and the mission of God? You may say, is there a need to have a burden? Isn't the American church doing just fine with the richest Christians the world has ever seen? There are mega churches all over the place. I passed 18 churches from my house to here. Isn't everything okay? Everybody I know is a Christian. Aren't we doing just fine? Well, numerically, we're not. Numerically, for the first time in the, the, I think it's 40, 60 year history of the Gallup poll, less than half of Americans attend church, not just church, but church or synagogue or mosque, any place of worship. Less than half of Americans for the first time ever. And and that's not like it's been hovering around the 50% mark. That is a 20% drop in the last 20 years. And, And what the stats show is that it accelerates every year. We've seen way more in the past few years than we did in the first 10 or 15 years. Evangelical attendance has gone down. Somebody considers themselves, and if if this is you, then I don't mean to offend you, but uh, people consider themselves a regular attender at church if they attend one to two times a month. Our denominations are declining. The last stats that I saw, 48 out of the top 50 largest denominations in the United States are declining year to year. And that pace is picking up. Not only that, but we have a whole new generation that's coming up, a whole new generation that that we have an epidemic of millennials who are rethinking and rejecting Christianity. It's spurred on by doubts about the moral claims of the Bible, but also about doubts about the church. What a lot of the surveys and conversations that I have is that they, it's, it's not so much to say, I don't believe the miracles, though some of that's an issue. It's they say, I don't know that you guys actually believe what you say that you believe. Because your lives don't look like this. You're more concerned about the politics or the politicians. You're more concerned about public policy or how many justices are on the court than you are about looking like the life of Jesus. 
We have the reduction of Christians to a voting block in America. And we've continually sold our support for loyalty on political issues. Numerically, we have a need for, to cry out, to have a burden. But not only that, but to me, maybe even a bigger issue is the lack of power in the church. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. But we're sadly ineffective in outreach and evangelism. We're impotent to truly help and change in the most contentious issues of the day. Where are the Christians who are speaking out, and not only speaking out, but modeling what it means to address biblically and Christ-like the biggest issues that we are facing in our society today? Now, we'd rather fight. We'd rather fight about masks or politics or social issues or worship style. We've splintered and fought each other. We've replaced spiritual power for economic and political power. And that we have. We have economic power. We have the most political power we've ever had. And yet we are sadly lacking spiritual power in our lives and in the churches in America. I I had COVID during Easter and I had to miss. And I... Worship with you guys from home. But then I had a chance because I wasn't doing Easter to kind of flip around and watch other churches around. And it's not casting aspersions. I just, what, what, what's totally stood out to me is on the day that we were celebrating the resurrection of Christ, there was a lack of resurrection power in his church. All this when Jesus promised that we would have power and we would be fruitful and effective even if we're despised. That's what happened in the church in Acts. It says that the, the people around them held them in fear. But yet, it was added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Even while being despised, Jesus promised we would have power and we'd be fruitful and we'd be effective. The numbers tell us we should have a burden. The lack of power tells us we should have a burden. But I think the greatest thing of all is the lack of the sense of the presence of God in our midst. We are called throughout the New Testament, we are called individually temples and collectively. The church is called collectively the temple or the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. It was God's great promise to the whole Old Testament. He said that he would dwell in them and among them, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that he would put his spirit within us. Can you imagine that? If you're familiar with the stories that the Shekinah glory of God is supposed to dwell in and among us as the church, the presence of God that caused people to weep and to tremble. That every time we see God's presence shows up, we see people fall down on their knees or fall down on their face as if dead. The first command that comes to every person who sees God or is in his presence is fear not because God's power is that and his presence is that overwhelming and powerful. Do we look like that? Do we smell like that? Do we feel like that? 
Where is he? Think about your own life. Think about our church. Think about the American church. Can you deny, can anyone honestly deny that there is a famine of the power and presence of the living God in our midst? And how can we be okay with that? That should be our biggest concern of our lives. Enough to forsake food and to whatever it looks like for us individually to be in sackcloth and ashes, mourning and pleading and praying, God, revive us again. Do we have a burden? Do we long to see God glorified through his church? To see a burden moves you. A burden causes you to reject what's comfortable. It causes you to leave the known. You stop what you always have been doing and you change and go in a different direction. Daniel couldn't keep on going like he'd had when he had a burden for, for God to move, for God to come and do what he said he would do. It pulled him forward and it pulled him down on his knees. And we won't see the church become what we can be and what we should be until it does the same for us. We can't keep on doing what we've been doing. We need real pleading prayer. No niceties, no guarding, no Jesus help us have a good day. No prayer time where I'm asking for prayers for my Aunt Alice. Her, her cat is sick, so I want you guys to pray for her without being real and being moved by what's really going on in life. We can't keep on doing what we've always been doing. I caught myself in this the past couple of weeks. I've been trying to help get things set up and I'm trying to help with these lights and get these things. And I can't figure them out. I am not a light guy. If anyone is a light guy, please come in and help us. But I can't figure these suckers out. And so the past two Sundays, I missed pre-service prayer because I was trying to get these lights fixed. And it hit me this week while I'm doing this study, that's the most asinine thing that I can think of. Can I say asinine, Dale? <laughs> that's the most asinine thing I can think of. What really matters when we gather here in God's presence, seeking him to move, is that if we have good lights or the sound is working, or is if his presence is here and we don't have anything else. It's not a... If not a chair is set up, if we are standing here and God's presence is here, that's enough. I should be where I should be is in preservers prayer, crying out and pleading to the Lord, Lord, come and move. And that's where you should be as well. And I don't say that to guilt anyone. I'm just saying if, we, if this pulls us forward and pulls us down on our knees, then we won't be able to pray in the back room anymore. Prayer will be a pre-service in, in this room. Lord, come and move. God, we've tried everything else. we tried Randy's preaching skills. we tried, tried David's preaching skills. we tried music. we tried changing the lights to pink, and none of those things seemed to work. But God, if you come, But it doesn't happen by just saying, okay, God, would you do that? Now let's go to Magnolia's for lunch now. 
It comes when the burden pulls us down to our knees enough that we change our lives. If it pulls us forward and pulls us down on our knees, then our community groups will look different. Sure, we'll share our needs, we'll share our hearts, we'll share what's going on, but the core of our prayer time together will be crying out, God, move. Pour out your spirit. Look down from heaven. Rend the heavens and come down, oh God. You said you would do it, Lord, and we won't let you go until you do it. Because I know that my neighbors, the answer for them is for them to see Jesus in me and pour out his spirit upon me. And so empower so the normal things I would say all of a sudden have a convicting power that I can't provide for them. It would change the way we worship as a group together in this room. I like this song. I don't like this song. I'm tired. It's hot. It's cold. Hey, all those things are valid things. But if the burden is pulling us down and forward, then before, during, and after service, we're crying out individually and collectively together, God, come and move. For me and for my family, for that person that's coming in that I don't, haven't met yet, God, what they need to meet is you in this place. It's not enough just to have a burden, though. A, a true burden leads to action. I'm going long. I'm sorry. I'm just letting you know. A true burden leads to action. We see the vast majority of this prayer is actually a prayer of profound repentance. What Daniel is saying is, God, we, you have sent us into captivity and you were right to do this. We have egregiously sinned against you over and over again. We have sinned and done wrong and added wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. To you, verse 7, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us. Then he prays for the nation of Israel. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. And the curse of the, and the oath that you've written in the law of Moses have been poured out upon us. Verse 13, but yet we have not sought the Lord, he says. All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. But then... He pleads with God. He confesses. He repents for his personal sin. He repents for the sins of his nation. And then he pleads to God. He appeals to God's mercy. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and your heart. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. When we get a burden, then it leads us to confession of our own personal sin. I think one reason the Lord tarries, just as he tarried here, the 70 years have passed, the Lord still tarried because repentance yet not, yet not, hadn't yet happened. 
We harbor personal sin. We don't deal with it. We don't confess it. I'm not talking about trying to fix it on your own. I mean confessing it and pleading with God that he would help you. No more, hey, I'm not going to look at that or do that or talk that way to that person anymore. And so then I can come to you in prayer, but saying, coming, turning it backwards and saying, God, I'm plead with you. I can't get over this sin. I can't get over this. I need you to come and help me. confession of our, our known sin, a confession of our apathetic mindset, where we're just okay with being okay. The confession of our corporate sin, of our church and the nation. God, we've been orthodox, but we've been dead. And pleading God's word back to him. Because of your great mercy. Because of your great mercy. Then quickly we see the end. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, the angel, by the way, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Listen to that. For you are greatly loved. We can pray when we have a burden. We come before the Lord in confession and repentance when we are stirred to see that things are not okay any longer, that we have to change and have a burden for God to glorify himself in and through his church in our day and age. We've heard the stories of the past, but in our day and age, make them known. In your wrath, remember mercy. When we do that, we can pray with steadfast faith. Not one morning, not one Sunday morning, not a week, not a two weeks, not 40 days. We pray with steadfast faith. We continue in prayer and we continue in faith because we know that like Daniel, we are greatly loved. And do you know how you can know that? Do you know how you can know that God will answer our pleading to him? We don't know how he will answer it or when he will answer it, what it will look like or when it will come, but we know that it will come when we plead and we cry out to him. And this is why, because we can look to Jesus and the cross. It's the concrete, historical event of Jesus becoming man, bearing our sins upon the tree, being buried on the third day, rising again, and now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's that historic event that we can know that we are greatly loved and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is sitting at the right hand of God, himself praying for us, his church. 
And so therefore, I know what I'm joining in is the prayers of Jesus. And I'm only coming to Christ through Jesus. And I'm saying, I'm only coming to the Father through Jesus. I'm saying, God, I know I can plead with you because you said this is what you want to do. And because I can come with confidence because I know like, like Daniel, like Jesus, I am greatly loved because of Jesus. I know that that event means that you are have already begun and are redeeming and restoring your people. That's what you're doing even now. And so we pray, God, come and revive that again. So here's what I want us to do. If you're here this morning, before we go into communion, and you're not a Christian, I'm not saying you wear the label Christian or not. I'm saying the spirit of God, as I've been speaking, is not stirring inside you, calling Abba, Father, do this, but it's saying you feel conviction. You feel I'm far from God. You feel I don't have Jesus Christ standing between me and him. I have no hope for tomorrow. Today needs to be your day. You need to, whenever we start, you need to come forward and see me or grab somebody beside you and say, I am not a Christian. I need to become one today. And I don't care if anybody knows it. I don't care if I have carried that label my entire life and my family, my wife, my kids, my husband, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, they all think I'm a Christian, but I right now, I know that I'm not. It means throwing that off and saying, I don't care any longer what people think about me. I need to confess, I am not a believer. Today needs to be your day. And if you are a Christian today, you let your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ spur you to reject living life like you always have lived. And you need to, might need to do some work with the Lord today. Before or during or after communion, you might need to stop where you are and cry out like Daniel. Silently, out loud, on your knees, with your hands up in the air, with tears flowing or not, cry out to God, God, give me a burden for your church and for your people. And if you have a burden to cry out and say, God, in our day, in our time, revive your works in your wrath, Lord. Remember mercy. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna have four stations of communion, one in each corner of the room. If you're a believer in Christ, we welcome you as, as you see fit. In time the Lord leads you, come forward and partake of the, the cup. You'll receive a little plastic cup. On top is the, a disc, the bread, and underneath is the juice. If you're not a Christian today, again, make today your day. And let's make as we end in worship together, let's make this a prayer time. Sing, yes, but pray. If you sing, make the song a prayer. The soul, if your soul stirs you, let Johann sing for you and you stand and pray wherever you need to be. Cry out for the Lord to move. In your heart, in this place, in our community, in our nation, let's pray. Lord, I think each person in this room 
can confess to apathy and lethargy. We've let our comfortability and the American promise of luxury and entertainment and comfort and security lull us to sleep. But Lord, that's not okay. I pray you would grant us repentant hearts. God, give us a burden. God, you said we would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, do that. God, I don't want, I want my children to have stories with you, but I don't want them to be the only stories in the family, God. God, in our day, in our time, God, we ask that you would move. But God, do with us what needs to be done in order to make us fit vessels for that. God, make our church, make the church, in our day and time, a beautiful city on a hill, a light and darkness, so that all would see you and your glory and your beauty. And they would confess on bended knees, those who've been far from you, how great is our God. In Christ we pray.